you may have seen the story. We were gone over July 4th up in the Upper Peninsula. You may have seen the story about the man who was a groundskeeper for a, a wealthy man in his estate. His full-time job was taking care of this man's lawn and landscaping, which is a crazy concept to me. But on the 4th, the, the rich man that owned the estate was away, and so this landscaper thought, man, his yard would be a perfect place to have a fireworks show for my friends. And so he invited some folks over and lots of space and lighting off the fireworks, and it was great until things got a little out of control, and one of them landed on the man's garage where he stored his classic car collection and burned it to the ground. And I think we have a picture. That's a... 1956 Ford Thunderbird. And it was like a $600,000 car collection that burned to the ground. Well, when the rich man heard that his garage was on fire, he rushed home and found out what had happened. Understandably, he was furious. And he not only fired the man on the spot, but he told the police who were there, I want this man arrested, take him to jail. Well, the man had a family, and he begged and pleaded. He said, look, it's not about the money. The man had insurance, but those cars were irreplaceable. And he said, sir, if you won't send me to jail, I'll do everything I can. I will help you replace those cars. And the man, against all odds, showed mercy and took pity. And not only said, all right, don't, don't take him to jail. We'll work this out. Didn't fire him, said, you can keep your job, and I forgive you. You don't have to replace anything. Did you see that story? Well, what you may not have seen is when the man went home to his little neighborhood, somebody had backed into the corner of his 1996 Chevy Corsica with 236,000 miles on it. And he was furious and started asking, who hit my car? And a neighbor sheepishly came out and said, man, I'm so sorry. I was backing out and one of the kids distracted me. I backed into your car and I'm so sorry and I'll, I have, I'll, I'll pay for it. I'll, I'll get it fixed. The man called the same police who'd just been at the rich man's house. He said, I want this man arrested. Take him to jail. That's a hit and run. Take him off. Well, the rich man found out about it. And, of course, he was furious. Did you see that story? Maybe you heard it. But you, you know I'm not telling the truth, right? <laughs> Nobody's Chevy Corsica ever made 236,000 miles. That's how you know it's a lie. But when Jesus told that story in Matthew 18, it was preceded by Peter asking a question, Lord, how much grace do I have to show? How much do I have to forgive before I finally get mine? And when Jesus told that story, well, his answer, that's a little over the top, Jesus. That's a little ridiculous. For a Jew, that was scandalous. We're people of the law. And we have to follow the law. And according to the law, he must pay. Well, Jesus' answer was, until you see that it isn't over the top, that it isn't ridiculous, then you'll never fully understand God's grace. A pastor from Durham, North Carolina, named Ricky Harris, an African-American man, shared a saying. I was watching a sermon that he preached. And if you're from the South, maybe you'll know what this is. Tell me if you do. The saying is, red on yellow, kill a fellow. Red on black. It's okay, Jack. Does anybody know what that's about? Snake, where are you from? <laughs> you taught school. All right, now I'm going to give a trigger warning for anybody that doesn't like snakes. Turn away for just a second. This is as innocuous a picture as I could find. But let's see the picture of those snakes. 
So what you have on top is the coral snake, red on yellow, kill a fellow. If the red's next to the yellow, is this right, Jason? If the red's next to the yellow, that snake will kill you. If the red's next to the black, like the king snake at the bottom, it's harmless. It's okay, Jack. Here's what Ricky Harris said. He said, now these two snakes look very similar. Their color scheme, their size, they, ha they live in the same habitat. And he said, even though these snakes look the same, one has a bite that will kill you. Then he said, there are two other things that place side by side to the untrained eye look almost identical, but one has a bite that will kill. And here's what he said. The gospel and religion live in the same habitat sing the same songs, pray the same prayers, read the same Bible, sit in the same pew. But one pattern leads to life by faith in God, while the other leads to death by faith in your actions. Today we're going to talk about grace. Grace is a good religious word, isn't it? But it's so much more. It's the foundation of the gospel. And grace, fully understood, fully grasped, fully received, and lived out, it's a word that could change your life. It could change your marriage. It could change your home. It could change your relationships. It could change so many things. But we have to see it as more than a religious doctrine. And we have to learn to put it into practice as a way of living. So over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at some core values of the Apostle Paul. And at the very top of his list is grace. Now, if you're not from a church background and you don't know what I'm talking about, simply define grace is the idea that God forgives our sins, that he cancels our debt simply because he wants to, because he loves us. And there's nothing we have to do to earn his forgiveness. There's nothing we can do to deserve his forgiveness. Church folks, we know grace, right? I mean, it's part of our landscape. We sing songs about it. We'll sing some songs about it later on. We've heard lots of sermons about it. Probably have scriptures on our wall. So there's a temptation. Oh, we're talking about grace. I know grace. There's a temptation to tune it out. But I hope you won't. Because if you tune out grace, you have to tune out a majority of the teachings of the New Testament. The word is used 122 times in the New Testament. 70% of those are by Paul. It was a big deal to him. Now, maybe Paul understood grace better than most because he had accrued some debt. He'd piled up a mountain that he could never repay. And Jesus forgave him. If you know the Apostle Paul, a man who was killing Christians, intent on eliminating the church until Jesus said, no, no, no. Not only do I forgive you, I'm going to use you. I have a purpose for you. And he called him to a life of service. Paul understood what it was to be in debt and unable to pay, but to have that debt forgiven. So to Paul, grace isn't merely a means of salvation, but to Paul, it, it should be the defining characteristic. It should be the natural expression. It should be the motivating impulse of everything we do in Jesus. Now, our core 52 verse today is one of a multitude from his writings we could have chosen, but we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2, We'll start with 8 through 10 and then back up a little bit from there. But Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it'll be on the screen or invite you to read along on your Bible or in your app. Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. 
So Paul starts out, he said, let me, let me explain what grace is. Number one, grace is the means of our salvation. There's a vertical dimension to grace. We inhabit an inequality of position before God. God is the owner in the parable Jesus told, and we are hopelessly indebted to him. We are deserving of punishment. There's an inequality of position. We have no right to stand in his presence. But inexplicably, he gives us a gift. Not something we earn, not something we achieve, not something we deserve, a gift. Grace stands in opposition to effort, to earning, to deserving, to trying really hard. Those are words that characterize religion. Ricky, the same Ricky Harris <clears throat> in a sermon called Grace Changes Everything said, I want to confess my dark secret. He said, I believe that I am good enough to deserve God's grace. He grew up in a religious culture that taught that. I believe that I'm good enough to deserve God's grace. He said, it's almost like I wake up every day saying, God, today is the day I can prove to you that I don't even need your grace. I'm going to be that good. And then he confessed. He said, it's really frustrating. He said, I know that. And this is a, a pastor at a large church. He said, I know the gospel here, but it's like I don't even believe it here. So I keep trying. I keep saying, God, did I do enough? Is that enough? Did you see what I did today? Is that enough? But grace is a gift. A.W. Tozer said, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. Now, maybe that's not your struggle with grace. Maybe you are fully aware of your sinfulness. Like the Apostle Paul, you know how much debt you have acquired and you have no choice but to cling to the belief that grace is enough to save you because you know there's still a part of you that's crouching just waiting for the opportunity to spring to life that sinful nature within you. And if you know that about yourself, that's, that's huge. That's all that's needed for salvation, to admit, I can't fix this about me. And God, I need your grace. I need Jesus to deliver me from myself. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and praise God for that life-changing truth, for that gift he's given. But Paul who is set free from trying to impress God by encountering grace, by encountering mercy and kindness. He didn't want to stop with just what grace is. He also wanted us to see what grace does because there was also a horizontal dimension to grace. Religion says it's just about me and God. I'll do my part, God will do the rest, and the gap in between, that's grace. But that's not the whole gospel. And that's not the sole purpose of God's grace poured out on us. In fact, if God's grace poured out on us doesn't lead to his grace being poured out through us, then we haven't really believed the gospel. Let me say that again. If God's grace poured out on us doesn't lead to his grace being poured out through us, we're missing the point. So again, in the parable Jesus told about the fireworks and the classic cars, the man received that grace from the wealthy man, but it didn't translate to similar grace to another. 
And when grace didn't express itself horizontally, what happened to the vertical relationship? Matthew 18, the master called the servant in and said, you wicked servant. In his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. If the grace we receive doesn't affect this, then we don't understand grace. Now, here's what Paul said. He said, grace is the means of our salvation. It's a gift. Then he said, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you have a vertical orientation, well, good works like what? You mean like sing more songs? Pray more prayers? Memorize more verses? Is that what you want, God? So there was a problem in the early church. Here's how it played out. As Paul would travel around the world, he would visit synagogues in every city he went to. He would find Jewish people who had grown up steeped in the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. They knew the promises of the Messiah. So it was really not a big leap for him to be able to demonstrate to them. It says even prove to them Jesus was the Messiah. They knew the scriptures. They were open to the message. And so he would plant these little churches. Well, then these little Jewish communities of Jesus believers would put the message to work in acts of radical love. They cared for the least among them. They appealed, <clears throat> and excuse me, <clears throat> their willingness to love the other really appealed to the Gentiles whose worldview assigned worth based on things you couldn't control. Oh, you were born there, you'll stay there. You were born there, sorry about your luck. The church said, no, you were born there, but God has lifted you up. So for the Jewish Christians, it felt really good to do things for those poor Gentiles. But then those Gentiles became part of the church. And suddenly, worshiping side by side, you had people who had grown up with Scripture and people who knew nothing of Scripture. People who grew up adhering strictly to the law and people who had no sense of moral boundaries whatsoever. People <laughs> with such radically divergent worldviews trying to blend together are in the common cause of Christ. And as you can imagine, there were disagreements. There was tension. There was strife. Whose standards do we have to follow? In the book of Acts, as the Jewish Christians were wrestling with what to do with this influx of Gentile believers. Specifically, the question was, do they have to become Jews first? More specifically, did the men have to be circumcised to become part of the church? That kills church growth, I just want to say. Well, after much discussion, Peter stood up and he said, you know that God poured out the same spirit on them that he poured out on us. I was there. I saw it happen. It can't be denied. In Acts 15, he says, God did not discriminate between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? We've not been able to keep the law. Why should we expect them to? And he said, no. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Here's what he was saying. Look, they're going to get some things wrong. So do we they're still saved. They do things differently than we do, but they are still in Christ. 
Some of their practices are actually kind of offensive to us. But their salvation is secure. Grace creates space for other people to get some things wrong and still be all right. Now, it would be nice if that in Acts 15 had been the end of it. But human beings are human beings. And the same problems continued. So in most of his writings, Paul keeps having to address this same struggle as they integrated traditions and understandings. You Jews are demanding you live up to your standards, but come on. You don't even live up to them yourselves. You Gentiles, as, as your influence in the church has grown, you've tried to set a completely different standard that you're accustomed to. But good grief, would you look at your life and how messed up you were because of that standard you were following and now you want them to follow it too? So he has to write and say, can we, it's the Rodney King gospel, can't we all just get along? In Ephesians 1, Paul reminds them of the beauty and the majesty of the gospel of Jesus. Remember how he's blessed us. Remember how he's chosen us. Remember how he's adopted us, all of us, given us his Holy Spirit, put us together to declare his glory. Do you remember that? And then in Ephesians 2, he says, now as for you, Jews and Gentiles, you had racked up quite a debt. Do you remember? Jews, Gentiles, men, women, slaves, free, it makes no difference. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Like the rest of us, like the rest, we, notice how he identifies with them. I'm not above you, I'm no different. We were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. Paul says, we've all received this vertical outpouring of undeserved favor from God. God has prepared these works for us to do. So what are you going to do with that? It's what happens next that makes the difference. So the next verse starts with my favorite word in Scripture, and that is, therefore. God has created us in Christ Jesus to do good works, therefore. And then the heading in my Bible for that whole next section simply says, Jew and Gentile reconciled through Christ. As a result of God's grace poured in you, things are different among you. So God has prepared the kind of works. The grace of God given to us results in a therefore that makes a difference through us and around us. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us. The question is simply, what is your therefore? In response to God's grace, God has given his grace to you, has poured out his forgiveness, his undeserved favor. Therefore, what? I said that grace could transform our homes. How? Well, grace doesn't bring up the past. Grace doesn't say things like, ah, you always. Ah, you never. Nobody always anything. Nobody never anything. Grace doesn't say things like, this is just like the time. You'll never change. If you've been transformed by grace, if you understand that you've been forgiven a mountain of debt, maybe you can forgive a little bit too. Parents, we want our kids to know God's grace. Then maybe we need to chill out about every little thing that drives us crazy and stop making our kids feel like they can never do anything to please us. 
You don't know how to do that? Stop and consider the grace God has given you. No, I'm not saying you let things slide. It's not the same. I'm saying you can address behaviors while still affirming the person. Maybe our kids need to see us model it in our marriages. Maybe they need to see that sometimes mom and dad do things and say things that hurt each other, but they still love each other. They still forgive each other. And you say, yeah, but David, that's really hard. I say, yeah, try dying on a cross. That's hard too. It's a cliche picture of the family screaming in the car on the way to church to praise Jesus. But maybe we need to give ourselves some grace and model reconciliation by saying, man, dad was having a bad moment and that was wrong and I'm sorry. In my car, when I take that first step, you know what usually comes back? Dad, I'm sorry too. How could grace transform your relationships at work? Like that coworker that heats up fish in the office microwave. <laughs> okay, you're right, there's no grace for that. <laughs> but do you ever preemptively react to what you already know somebody's gonna say before they even say it? It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Maybe listening and empathizing before you react is a form of grace. Before you fire off the email to your child's teacher or coach, because you this, an idiot that. Grace remembers. Grace asks, have, have I ever had to make a decision? Have I ever been in a position like that? Have I gotten it right every time? And you may think, well, they, they don't deserve that. They haven't earned that. They're wrong. Yeah. Once you say that, then you understand grace. God's grace can't be earned. It can't be paid back. But it can be paid forward. That's the nature of God's grace. What is paid, poured into us pours out through us to others. We simply say, God, you've forgiven so much. Help me to be gracious, to forgive the little slights and insults and minor debts against me. Before this can ever be right, though, it has to start here. It has to start with Jesus and the mountain of debt he has forgiven or that he wants to forgive in each one of us. Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's not fair. That's not just. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Can we admit that? Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Man, we owe him everything. We could never pay anything. He says, that's okay. That's okay. My grace is sufficient. Folks, that's the gospel. That's not religion. Religion asks, what do I have to do? How can I earn? How can I get up to God? But the gospel is the story of a God who came down to us, who emptied himself, took our sin upon himself, who died and rose again so we might have new life. Not that we earned, not that we deserved. A gift. Free from having to perform, achieve, earn, impress. 
free to serve, to give, to love, to forgive those around us. May we be people of grace. Let's pray. God, thank you for the grace you've shown to us. May we never think so highly of ourselves that we think we're beyond it. God, I'm so good. I don't need grace. We, we don't understand it all. The magnitude of our offense against your holy character. God, we are by nature objects of wrath, deserving punishment, but you took that punishment for us. God, for those who've never experienced that kind of grace, who've either divine grace or even human grace, that life has been just always having to measure up and perform and please, God, I pray that you would set those people free. They would hear you say, you are my beloved child. I give everything for you, God, that they would come to you and receive the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness. God, for those of us who have received that, may we never think that yeah, we probably deserved it. But God, may that be the catalyst that propels us wherever we go, whoever we meet, to be voices of uh, to be havens of peace and forgiveness and rest and love that points to you. God, may your grace given to us always shine through us that it might lead people to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.